This audio is from the Axis Church and is part of our sermon series, The Reason We're Here, a study of the book of Acts. For more information, go to theaxischurch.org. We're looking into the history of the church. The book of Acts is the historical narrative of the first 32 years of the formation of the church and the explosion of Christianity. The events that took place there in those first 32 years following the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the reason we're sitting in this room today, thousands of years later, thousands of miles from the origin of this initial move of God in His people, the church. The book of Acts is an amazing story of God's grace flooding out to the world. The gospel moving from just a handful of disciples to 120 disciples to 3,120 disciples to stretching all around the world. And even at the end of, of Acts, we'll learn that it's made its way well into Rome and the other, uttermost parts of the known world. Acts is a historical account of how the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes something about absolutely everything. Acts itself is written by a historian, a well-respected historian, one of the most respected historians of the ancient church, Luke. Luke also wrote the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. Uh, he was by trade a doctor, a physician, as well as a historian. And so he's not writing for us a religious pamphlet or track. Luke is writing history. He's doing hard work. He investigated. He got firsthand eyewitness accounts. Even in Luke 1, he said that he wanted to present an accurate and orderly account of interactions with Jesus. And so he gives us Luke. And now he's giving us firsthand eyewitness account, a historical perspective, a fair perspective of the origins of the church and how it was formed. And so for summary's sake, I'm just kind of catch you up where we are in Luke, I mean in Acts chapter 2, in perspective of the picture of Christ and his story and the story of the church, uh, Jesus is killed. Jesus is murdered, he's crucified, he doesn't stay dead, instead he kills death, and he's raised from dead from the grave. Jesus begins teaching and ministering with his disciples and other followers for 40 days. His group of disciples that scattered at his arrest and his death is now a, a stronger 120 devout followers of Jesus. He promises his disciples that they will receive power, literally dynamite, Dynamis is the word. They're going to receive true power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them and then they would be His witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But first He told them to wait. He gives them this incredible charge to go, but then He says, wait. Wait for this power before you go. This was his last promise, is that this power would come to them. So then the disciples saw Jesus taken up in his ascension. As we looked last week, 
took him up into his glorious and magnificent ascension, and now they're meeting together to pray and to wait. And Acts chapter 1 tells us that as they're waiting, they replace Judas, the betrayer, as one of the twelve with Matthias, and they're doing what Jesus said. They're waiting together. That's where we have ourselves in Acts chapter 2. So let's jump in, starting in verse 1. Now, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. It's the beautiful unity of the early church is something we must strive for because it's so present in our study in the book of Acts. So Pentecost is one of three main festivals in Judaism. The other, Passover, as well as the tabernacles. So Pentecost was observed only 10 days after the ascension of Jesus. The root word for Pentecost is penta, which means 50. Pentecost comes 50 days after Passover. Jesus dies on Passover, 40 days he teaches, 10 days they're without Jesus, and then Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover. Now, originally, Pentecost was uh, to, to celebrate the, uh, the barley festival. But as time went on, Pentecost came known to commemorate the giving of the law from God to Moses and his people at Mount Sinai following Passover, which is when they remembered the faithfulness of God in freeing them from Egyptian bondage. So by now, Pentecost festival was about fulfillment. It was about completion. It was uh, thanking God for finality of him keeping his promises with his people. It's beautiful that Pentecost, Acts 2 Pentecost, falls, the, the coming of the Spirit falls with this observance of celebration of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. It's beautiful. So Pentecost has arrived and they were all together in one place. Now imagine all that these disciples, these young followers of Christ had been through. Jesus is killed. He reveals himself after death to hundreds of people. He teaches for 40 days and then he's gone. He's ascended. It's difficult to wrap your mind around all that was going on in the hearts and minds of these early followers. But they're together. They have little clue what else to do. Jesus said, go and wait together. So they're waiting and they're together. Verse 2, and suddenly, instantly, there came from heaven. And I think that's important that Luke gives us the direction here. God is the one who's taking initiative of his own accord Suddenly there came from heaven a sound, and Luke is describing the sound. He's using a metaphor. It's a sound that's not a mighty rushing wind, but it's like a mighty rushing wind. And this sound filled the house where they were sitting. So the disciples, the, the apostles were just waiting, and then God takes the initiative and come, comes towards them. This is the pattern of God throughout Scripture. By grace, he moves towards us. Now imagine the sound, if you've ever been to the beach, where there's typically a breeze. Imagine a, a very breezy day at that, at the beach. You're looking out at the water, at the ocean, and there's the wind that just howls through your ear, your ears, right? You're just, it's, it's loud. It's hard to hear the people. But imagine that noise without, without feeling the wind 
break across your body or see it move anything, just a roar. This was the wind of God. This was the sound of God. A theophany, a visible manifestation of the invisible God. And the most common theophany in the Old Testament was that of fire, which is interesting because in verse 3 it says, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So here Luke is giving the clearest retelling of this event using human language to depict a heavenly and supernatural experience. He's doing his best to describe what was happening. And so without assuming too much, what we know is that this was an event unlike any other, and that's what Luke wanted us to know. All right, this was not normal. This hasn't happened before. This was supernatural. God shows up in power. His presence manifested himself in a way that was tangible and visible and objective. And by objective, I mean, you know how sometimes you can experience something and and talk about how remarkable it was and other people be unmoved by it, perhaps even sleep through it. Like maybe a great movie, you're such a thriller and like, man, I passed out like five minutes into it. It's boring. What? No, that's subjective. This was objective. It was obvious, and this was experienced by all in the room together. God is here. This is a fact. They're together, and they're experiencing what Jesus said that they would experience. There's no doubt about it. There's no questions about it. This is exactly what we're supposed to wait for. It's happening. Verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, Radical grace. (laughs) They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues and other languages, as we'll see, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the combination of the sound like a violent wind and the tongues of flame that were resting on the 120 Christians made it obvious that this was a visitation from God, that God was present. The promise of the Spirit has become a reality. Wind and fire would cause any student of the Torah to think back to Exodus 3 with the burning bush and Moses. It would, it would cause them to think back to the, to the Old Testament, back when God used a strong wind to blow back the Red Sea so that the children of Israel could cross. And they would go back to where they would remember this fire, this pillar of fire and smoke that led the children of Israel to Mount Sinai and on into the Promised Land. There would be very little doubt, if any doubt whatsoever, that this was God. In the Old Testament, God's presence and His Spirit was with people corporately and collectively, and the Spirit would temporarily and particularly work in certain people's hearts. The language of the Old Testament is very careful. It talks about the Spirit of God coming upon but it doesn't use the word within. It doesn't use the language of dwell as in permanence, as in to tabernacle with his people and among his people. You see now, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension, each and every individual believer in Christ Jesus that's gathering here this day in Jerusalem is touched by him. There's no exception. Both men and women, apostles and ordinary believers 
The Holy Spirit is permanently dwelling within God's people. And the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in God's chosen people is once and for all. He will never leave you nor forsake you, a very consistent teaching in our scriptures. So in jaw-dropping display of power, Jesus indwells his people through his spirit. The church is being formed. Now these frail and weak, cowardly human beings are fleshly temples of the living God. They're now transformed by God's power and his love and his unity that, that comes from the Holy Spirit. But what languages, what, what tongues, what's the purpose? It's strange, it's unique. What's happening here? Well, let's continue as Luke is going to give us greater insight. Look in verse 5. Now, they were gathering in Jerusalem. They were dwelling in Jerusalem. Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. This is significant for many reasons, but one of the reasons is that Jesus had told his followers, his disciples, remember, Matthew 28, Acts 1-8, that they're going to be his witnesses to all nations, to disciple all peoples from all nations. And now here in Jerusalem, Luke tells us that there are Jews who are in and around the temple grounds near the upper room where they are, who are representing most of the known world. And at this sound, this multitude, this large crowd begins to gather to this large sound. At the sound... The multitude came together and they stopped in their tracks. They were bewildered, flabbergasted. They were blown away by this. What? Because each one was hearing, hearing them speak in his own language. You see, this moment isn't just a supernatural hearing or speaking, but it's a supernatural hearing. They were hearing them speak in their own language, in their own dialect. The gospel is breaking through language barriers and going forth to all nations just as Jesus said it would. And they were amazed. They were swept off their feet. They were astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Like from that small little rural town outside of Jerusalem? Not really significant, not too profound. Simple people? And, and how is it that, that we hear each of us in his own native language? It's not Aramaic. We're, we're hearing this in our own dialect, in our own heart language. We're, we're hearing this in the language of the countries that we now live in. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, meaning Gentiles that had converted to Judaism, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, in our own languages, the mighty works of God. We're hearing them tell of the greatness of God. We're hearing them praise God. They're telling of the faithfulness of God, but in my language. 
the language of my people back home. If you're ever in a foreign country and you've been there for an extended time, a couple weeks maybe or longer, and you haven't been around clear English, kind of just some rough English from an interpreter that's given his best shot, and then all of a sudden you hear somebody talking from Tennessee or Alabama or Georgia, right, which is a different type of English, right? <laughs> you know, if you're not from here, you know what I'm talking about. If you're from here, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But you hear that and, and you're just like, whoa, wait a minute. I got to go talk to this person. What's your story? Like, you know, tell me more. What are you doing here? Because it's, it's, it's not normal. This was, they had been hearing Aramaic. They had been hearing other languages, not from their people, but from Jerusalem and, and Aramaic, perhaps some Hebrew. But now here they're hearing it from other nations in other languages, and they're drawn to it. The loud sound draws this large crowd to the 120 disciples. The 120 are given this supernatural ability to speak language that languages that they hadn't learned prior. Language takes a hard time, a long time, and, and hard work to develop. Even as a child, even if you're trying to learn a new language in school or preparing for mission work, you're trying to learn a new language. It's not something you just pick up instantly, especially without study. But that happens right here. They were given the knowledge of other languages, but the purpose was to tell of the mighty works of God, to point out just how faithful God was and just how faithful God is. It's beautiful. And all were amazed, verse 12, and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? I mean, the sound, the languages, the messages of praise to God coming from those guys? Like, they don't know this stuff. Something powerful, something supernatural, something special is going on. Verse 13, but others mocked, saying, they're filled with new wine. So not all truly heard. Some heard babbling. So again, it's a miracle not just of speaking, but it's a miracle of hearing. Because not all heard. Look in verse 14. But Peter, now we know Peter up until this point. Peter, cuts off the ear of Malchus, trying to engage the enemy at the arrest of Jesus, taking the kingdom of God by force, thinking politically, thinking earthly, not thinking kingdom of God, big picture, as Jesus was working his purposes. Peter, who denies three, Jesus three times, on one occasion, literally damning the name of Jesus. And, and it wasn't to like rulers or guards, it was to servant a servant girl. It was in the shadow of a servant girl that he crumbles in fear and dread, and he denies Jesus. That Peter, except that Peter who has seen the risen Jesus Christ. So he's not the same guy. It's the Peter who's been restored by Jesus Christ. So it's not truly the same guy. He's profoundly different because of his interactions with the risen Christ Jesus. A great apologetic for Christianity being legit is seeing the change in behavior in guys like Peter who run like a scared cat, but who boldly stands as a roaring lion in moments like this. That Peter 
He stands with the 11 in verse 14 and he lifts up his voice and he addresses them saying, men of Judea and, and, and everyone else and, and all others who are dwelling in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give your ear to my words. Know this truth, you listen to me. For these people, these 120 people are not drunk as you suppose. And it's funny that he gives this reason. Because it's only 9 a.m., right? <laughs> That's his first apologetic. We're not drunk because it's... Well, who gets drunk at 9 a.m., right? It's kind of find that funny. That's, that's cool. Thanks, Luke. But this, this is what's happening. These men are not intoxicated, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, citing Joel 2, 28 to 32. This is a prophecy made hundreds of years earlier by the prophet Joel. Some of these words we're still awaiting fulfillment on, but Peter is seeing these prophecies of Joel as happening right there at Pentecost. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's what you're witnessing. You're witnessing God pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Sons and daughters, your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Young and old, sons and daughters, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. Not just prophets, priests, kings, and leaders, but even servants will receive my spirit and begin to prophesy of my greatness. That's what Peter's saying is happening in this moment at Pentecost. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And here's what we still await for fulfillment. Blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord, the return of Christ comes. A great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Everyone who calls, you just have to call. Everyone who calls will be saved. Not trick, not bait and switch. They will be saved. That's a promise that we have here. This isn't an insignificant afterthought. This is placed up against the backdrop of coming judgment that, that Joel gives us. But everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then, and then Peter goes on in verse 22 to tell more about Jesus. Here's the truth of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man tested, attested to you, validated, proven to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs and miracles that, that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, you know this. You saw the blind guy. You were there. I know that you saw the risen Christ. You were with me when he was teaching us. After he beat death, you talked to Lazarus after Jesus had beaten death. You attest to this man. You have seen the works and miracles that God performed through Jesus. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by death. 
the men of Israel meant to destroy Jesus of Nazareth. But in the process, they were working out nothing less than the eternal will and purposes of God. Nevertheless, Peter says that it was lawless and that they are to be held responsible for that. So Peter embraces perfectly the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He goes on to preach that not only was it possible for Jesus to beat death, he says that it was impossible for him to not beat death. Over and over again, the Old Testament tells of the Messiah who will conquer death and Jesus himself continually teaching in his teaching on earth that he would beat death. This is the first Christian sermon that Peter's giving us. It is full of scripture. It is full. It's biblical in that sense. It's full of Bible. And it's all about Jesus. And it's preached fearlessly, regardless of what culture might say about it. That's the type of preaching that we need even today. That's what the preaching was that founded the church. Though it's hard to find preaching that is thoroughly biblical, that is Christ-centered, and that is boldly declared regardless of what culture thinks. But pray that this continues to develop and become even more prominent in the days ahead in the church. Pray for this. The church needs this. All around the world, the church needs this. But Peter models this by going to Joel. He models it by going to Psalms with Psalm 16, 8 through 11. He cites David. Look in verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Full of gladness with his presence. That's what they're experiencing there at Pentecost. This prophecy was given through David, but it's Jesus speaking of himself through David, the psalm writer. And now Peter gives commentary on this psalm. Look in verse 20, 29. He says, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, meaning of the town of Bethlehem, the city of David, seat of, seat of David, of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David would sit on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, the resurrection of Christ, that he was not in fact abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He's speaking of Jesus. So this promise was made thousands of years, a thousand years earlier, back in a day and age where no one knew anything about Jesus of Nazareth, but whom God had revealed to men like David truths about that coming Messiah who would sit on his throne, truths like he would not experience eternal death, that death wasn't strong enough to hold the Messiah down. 32, this Jesus, God raised up, and we, of that, we are all witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has now poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You're seeing the Holy Spirit of God poured out to his people. It's not alcohol. This is a spirit of God producing gladness and joy and prophecy that was taught about a thousand years ago, 700 years ago, and 400 years ago. That's what you're seeing. The, he, he goes on in verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says the Lord in Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In saying that he did, David did not sit into the heavens, he's basically saying that the body of David stayed in the tomb, though his soul departed. Jesus, his body and his soul, was not held by the grave. But you could visit the tomb of David, but you can't visit and find Jesus at the tomb of Jesus because Jesus has been exalted. He's now at the right hand of God and he has sent to us his spirit. And it's as if Peter is saying, what you're seeing and what you're hearing is the promise of the Holy Spirit that Jesus said would come to us. You are being affected by the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on. Then in verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord, the one you submit to as authority and ruler over all things. And Christ, the Messiah, the one who was sent that we've been waiting for to rescue us and redeem us. They all heard the gospel preached this day. And the gospel demands a response. You can't hear the gospel and remain indifferent. You believe it or you deny it. To be indifferent is to, not, is to deny it, its truths and its claims. Let's see what their response was in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were pierced. And they said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, well, I wasn't involved in the crucifixion. Well, my intentions were good. Well, that's not all that really happened. They don't try to escape or elude. They don't try to justify themselves or their behavior, which we're so good at these days. They own it. Brothers, what shall we do? It's a beautiful, soul-searching response, loaded with honesty. They're cut to the heart. God, through the preached word, cut through their hearts of stone and pierced their hearts. We see what's happened. We, we see what we've done. We're not justifying it. We, we own it. We're guilty. But, but what do we do? Is there anything that we can do now? We get it now. What's acceptable for us to do? We've been blind fools and we have no excuse. Which that's the entry point for Christianity. That's, that's what it means to, to come to the end and see your need for redemption. Living a life of sin and unbelief, you realize I'm wrong, I'm guilty, what now? And you hear Jesus say, Come to me. Come on. 
Peter says to them, repent, change your mind entirely. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the remission of your guilt, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Repent of your opposition to Jesus. Don't turn to your default settings any longer. Don't, don't, don't run to the places that you typically run to seeking out soul relief or freedom from guilt or satisfaction. Don't, don't run there anymore. Repent. Run to the cross. Run to Jesus. Run right into the loving, gracious, forgiving arms of God, your heavenly Father, your Creator, and be baptized. Be baptized identifying yourself with Jesus and His mission and receive forgiveness. Be freed from guilt and shame and condemnation. Rid yourself of your sinful past and lay hold to your future that's loaded with hope because it's marked by forgiveness that's been paid in full. And receive the Spirit of God. Jesus makes this possible. Repentance to Jesus is the only way to receive forgiveness and to receive the Holy Spirit and to become part of the Christian community called the church, the bride of Christ. Repentance is turning from your sin and turning towards Jesus to the one who lived, loved, suffered, died, and beat death for you. The Christian life is, is a life that's lived of repenting early and often, where you, you realize that, that in an ongoing way that you're continually reminded that you're not Lord that you're, you're, you shouldn't be seeking out for that satisfaction and that fulfillment in those things. Only Jesus is Lord and only Jesus can satisfy. So repentance is that recognition of turning away from your own lordship and, and recognizing and submitting to his lordship. It's, it's the recognition and submitting to his lordship that is the mark of a healthy Christian in that repentance of early and often dozens and dozens and dozens of times a day. But is that part of your everyday life? Is repentance part of your life? Repentance is the only way to experience real forgiveness from real guilt. Repentance says, God, I'm sorry for my sin and my offenses to you. You are my only hope. You are the only one that can redeem me and give me lasting life and a true hope. It's trusting in what Jesus has done for you. Forgiveness is yours. He goes on in verse 39 to say, for this promise, this promise of the Father, this Holy Spirit, it's for you. And it's for your children and for all who are far off geographically, for all who are far off nationally, for all who are far off spiritually. Remember, Paul talks about this in Ephesians where he says that the gospel was preached to those who were near and to those who were far off. It was preached to the Jews and it was preached to the Gentiles. And the dividing wall of hostility that separated those two from covenant has been torn down. And Christ has torn down the two, joined them, reconciled them together, making one in place of the two. 
this reconciling work, now this gospel can be preached to those who are far off. And I'm glad because I was one of those far off and so are you. Everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, it was a great sermon. (laughs) With many, many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The world is not enough. Find salvation in Christ. And those who received the word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. The promise being the promise of the Father, the Spirit of God, abides with mankind as they by faith alone, through grace alone, trust and hope in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation from sin and death, only possible through Jesus. What we have here is Pentecost. It's the glorious and long-anticipated fulfillment of God's plan of redemption that's been in place from the very beginning. And we already see the gospel of Christ going to all nations through his witness that's enabled through his Holy Spirit. This is still to be what the church is known for and what the church is to be about. Axis family, the Christian church above all else is to be known for the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ in word and deed on Sunday and Monday by everyone who is by grace made into a new creation. The church is primarily to be known as a group of people that get together to talk about Jesus and to get excited about Jesus and to never be able to get over Jesus. That's like they all, all they're consumed with is Jesus. That's what the church is to be known for is that group of people who can't get over Jesus and they constantly try to live as Jesus lived. I don't have to tell you that that's not, at least that's not all that the church is known for these days. But this is the early church. This is what the church, I submit to you, the church should still be about. The living out of the the Christian life, the declaring Jesus Christ to be Lord of everything living as Jesus lived, fully empowered by the Holy Spirit, showing grace and kindness. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit to fulfill this task of being His witnesses in Nashville, Middle Tennessee, our region, our nation, and around the world. We have been given everything that we need to fulfill the task that He's called us for. He hasn't set us up for failure. We have all that we need. We've been given supernatural skill and power and ability for the task that he's called us to collectively as a church and individually as Christians. But I ask you, practically, are you relying on this power? Are you relying on the Holy Spirit's power to to live life, to do what it is that he's called you to do? Are you relying on God for his power to do his thing in and through you every day? Tell him every day that you need his help, that you need his direction, that you need his wisdom, that you need his power and his strength. Part of the reason that this is such a struggle for us, perhaps, is that we continually work so hard at living the Christian life without the Holy Spirit's power. 
We rely heavily on ourselves and only in emergency do we cry out for the Holy Spirit to intervene. May we admit this struggle and realize that the Holy Spirit was given to us in part for this very reason, that it is struggle. God comes to our weakness. He enables us to accomplish miraculous deeds for the salvation of others and for us to experience deep joy and satisfaction as we live lives on mission that we were created to live. So Christian, please know that you are a supernaturally enabled person. (laughs) But do you consider yourself that? Are you consciously aware of the Holy Spirit living inside your body? The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you. Is it it a confidence that you're living in each day that you're relying on His power and He doesn't know how to fail? Don't put your weaknesses on Him. He doesn't know those weaknesses. Don't rely on your own strength to fight that sin. Don't rely on your own strength to be a bold witness for Christ. Don't rely on your own strength to grow in confidence in your Christian walk and begin discipling others. Don't rely on your own strength for these things. Don't trust yourself in these things. Live in that reality that you have been supernaturally empowered to fulfill what it is that God has prepared beforehand that you should do. And so pray asking God to allow you to practically become less and less dependent upon yourself and your awesomeness and your skills and your abilities and your talents, and that you would become more and more dependent upon him, where you would quickly admit your weaknesses and inabilities And that you would quickly ask him for the needed ability and strength to accomplish what it is that he's called you to. Are you asking for his help? In Luke 11, Jesus says, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Are you asking for his help in this way? I mean, the disciples, they didn't know the languages they were speaking. Yet they were speaking different languages. Don't minimize what God can do in and through you. Don't think, well, I don't know that, or I'm not, I'm not prepared. If he's called you to it, do it. Don't limit him. Trust him and depend on him. There's no such thing as a, as a Christian who hasn't been anointed for the work of the ministry. You have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. Trust in Him. Now, we don't all have the same gifts, but we do have the same Spirit. And every one of us is called to a life of ministry, a life of mission, and making disciples who make disciples living the life of a missionary, every one of us. But do you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you? God is still mercifully and joyfully calling people to salvation. Is He calling you? You, You've heard the gospel proclaimed, 
you've heard a sermon on the very first Christian sermon that's ever given. What do you believe about Jesus? Has he saved you? Is his spirit dwelling within you? Run to him. Turn towards Jesus. He'll sort through all the details as your faith grows. Don't worry about that right now. He's got it. Just come to him. Just call. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Turn towards Jesus. Rely on him for your hope and your confidence in this life and the life to come. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for continuing to prove yourself as true and trustworthy and how these things happened just as according to how you said they would happen, that you told them to wait. They waited and you sent, faithfully sent your spirit to them and you enabled them to preach the gospel with boldness. You pour out forgiveness upon those who simply call out to you, those whom you're calling to yourself. Lord, I ask that you do that even now in this moment. Lord, that you would continue to work in the hearts of, of these people, of us, calling us to yourself. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that your work has given us, granted us. Thank you for the spirit that is at work in us and in our church. Lord, I pray for those who, who do not know what it's like to be forgiven, who still are trying to work their way out of their guilt, who are trying to mourn enough to show everyone that, that they realize they're dirty and guilty, but they don't know what else to do at the end of beating themselves up. Or the ones who's hoping that they can do enough good this month to cancel out what happened two weeks ago. Lord, that they would see that they can't do this. That they can't rid themselves of their guilt. And would they see you clearly as one who was declared guilty so that they could hear innocent? Would they see you as the one who has come to free them from their guilt and their sin and can grant them forgiveness. Do this work in this room in the hearts of these people through your spirit that we just read about. Do this. Encourage the hearts of your Christians. Mobilize us on mission. Give us the boldness to faithfully, consistently declare your mighty works and the fame of your son, Jesus, who changes something about everything. Lord, help us in this way this particular week. God, be with your church. Continue to build us up. Make this a special moment as we remember your faithfulness. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.